0: Hello and welcome to Little Fictions on Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions on Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. Today's episode is called Progeny, and it explores the challenges, joys, heartache and madness of having children. Before we get started, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain strong language. In our first story, The Incredible Exploding Baby, we meet Matthew and Carper, proud parents of an incredible exploding bub. This piece of creative non-fiction is by Matthew Bullman, a writer and chiropractor who lives in the Sydney suburb of St Peter's with his wife and son. He maintains a blog called OK, Anything, Whatever and runs a sports injury and chiropractic centre. The incredible exploding baby was selected from our Little Fiction's call-out and was performed at Knox Street Bar by Felix Johnson.
1: This is a story about me and Karpagavali, my wife. I'm from Philadelphia, USA, and she's from Tamil Nadu in India. We are a St Peter's couple and we're about to enter parenthood. My first dad joke occurred at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in December 14, 2015. On this day, which coincides with my son, Sidan's 20-week ultrasound, we discovered we were expecting a baby boy. We'd previously planned a trip to my wife's home, a village south of Chennai. We intended to spend Christmas and New Year's there with her family. However, at the time of booking, we knew we were in the early stages of the pregnancy and so purchased travel insurance as our flight was due to depart just after our 20-week ultrasound. While ordinarily I would ridicule such extravagant purchases as travel insurance, I conceded that insurance is part of being a parent and we should purchase it because Carper had said the magic words. These words, I remember clearly, were fine, if you're too cheap to do it, then I'll pay for it. In hindsight, insurance seems to have been a worthwhile idea, one of CARPA's many good ideas. And while I easily keep up with CARPA in the production of ideas, many of my ideas are unfortunately bad ideas. But I have a lot of them, so I guess that's worth something. You can pretty much do anything but fly, this is what the doctor told us. Apparently, Carpa had a placenta previa A common and often self-correcting condition, but one where complications can arise Doctor? I asked Is that because boys don't fly? Silence <laughs> You know, the cue a song More silence I, I broke the silence by saying Wow, honey, sure it's a good thing we purchased flight insurance Week 30, I'm 37 years old. I look much younger because I'm very immature. Also, I exercise a lot and I don't drink, smoke or do drugs. However, I have done a lot of those recreational activities but I'm really bad at them. i tell you this information so that you know I'm more of a reformed sinner rather than a complete pussy. I never wanted to be a dad. I never dreamed of getting married or having children or settling down or owning a house. Even at 35, it's not something that seemed to have any appeal to me. It appeals now, though. It's like all those years of therapy convinced me that even though I suffered at the hands of my parents, I'm okay with that. I accept it. And now it's my turn to pass that type of suffering onto the next generation. That's something that everyone should experience. Week 33. 33. Shopping for a fetus is weird. One area of concern that I continue to have is the tag on all of our baby clothes. It says, low fire danger. Whenever I see a warning label, my mind immediately wonders what situation must have occurred to necessitate a warning label. What are other parents thinking? And am I stupid enough to also require for a warning? So I guess we're currently learning how to fireproof the baby. Week 35 of pre-season fatherhood has been the toughest so far. The burden seems too much at times. I'm uncomfortable, my back aches, and I keep misplacing my keys. St Anthony grows weary from my constant plea for help, and I look forward to this baby being born so that life can return to normal. As always, Carper remains stoic. We've been to the hospital to tour the facilities. The tour itself was interesting, We learned the history of the hospital, named after Queen Victoria's second son, Albert. He was shot in Sydney, saved by a surgeon. Apparently getting shot was the most profound thing he accomplished in life, so the city of Sydney therefore named a hospital after him. I helped out the tour guide by saying, in my country, the United States, if we erected and then named a hospital after each shooting, we'd quickly fix most of my country's problems. Although I was not permitted to ask any more questions or add any more interesting asides to the tour, I did learn what my role will be when Carper goes into labour. In a strange twist of irony, I learned that dads welcome their children into the world these days by literally taking on the role of cheerleader. I am to shout things like, you're doing great Carpa. keep going, push, damn it son, get out of there. There's a fair amount of liberty with what I'm permitted to say during labor, so long as I remain positive and I don't take anything that comes back at me personally. Apparently, women block out some of this process after the delivery. I suppose I shouldn't say anything too disparaging to my child during this process, no matter how much pain they seem to be causing their mother. They don't know any better. It'll be my job to teach them not to repeat something as traumatic as being born. Fatherhood is not about the glory of big moustaches. It's not about afternoon naps, nor is it about evening roughhousing sessions with your wife. Fatherhood goes beyond remembering where you parked the baby and further than asking other parents for directions or if they've seen a new baby in this general vicinity somewhere. During the birthing process, it's important to stay steady and strong for your wife. She may scream like a harpy, but she is no harpy. She is your wife and she has a baby stuck inside her. And although she yells at you in the Sanskrit derivative and rips your shirt from your chest, you must remain positive for her and yell bare chested encouragements like, push, push the baby out of your uterus. (laughs) When you come to, they will say things like, are you okay? And you should have warned us, you hit your head quite hard. Feel proud, check the lump on your head for blood, but feel proud and know that you did it. You made a baby. After you familiarise yourself with the new human being, you will have a few responsibilities. It is your job to burp the baby after he is fed, but do not pretend to fly the baby after he is fed. You may change the baby after he has pooed, but do not fly the baby after he has pooed. Although baby poo poo is cute and baby vomit is cute, really, you're actually gross. As a parent, there are moments of sheer joy. Like the first time you feel your son fall asleep in your arms Behind the steering wheel of your large automobile And there will be germs And people bringing in the germs And you must decide which germs to expose your new child to And who gets to hold the baby with their germy hands And so it is important to always keep alcohol nearby And get people to wash their hands in vodka Or whiskey or whatever you have in the house But the baby cannot have the vodka or whiskey Not even a little bit. Week six, the incredible exploding baby. Six weeks later, and covered in vomit, parenthood has changed you. And you can't say it's for the better. Were you asked six weeks ago if you could go back to sleep after a fountain of spew dribbled down your pyjamas? The answer would have been no. But as a responsible parent, it is remarkable how flexible you have become when it comes to seeking sleep. Never have you been overly comfortable with bodily fluids. Not your style. You prefer to deny their existence, calling on euphemism and pronoun where necessary. Waterworks. It. Out of politeness. But all the niceties in the world won't change the fact that your son is shitting all over everything in the house and seemingly enjoys playing in vomit. Buy reams of plastic. Cover everything. Ponchos are a good idea. Despite best efforts... Sidan is like a fire hose, perpetually wet, his head is constantly soaked. And you're okay with that if he's okay with that. Karpa, however, would offer up a counter-argument. She's of the opinion that you must keep him clean and dry. So you bathe him and repeatedly do laundry. He goes through ten nappies and four outfits per day. The kid is like a milk-fed sausage in a pan – Stuffed, sizzling, and bursting at the casing so that you cannot avoid getting just a little on your sleeve. But this inevitability has brought you to a point of acceptance. You accept this exploding baby of yours and support his current interests. Maybe it's maturity. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's the fact that your son's only food is breast milk, so his puke is really breast puke. So it's your job to support him and be in his corner and say things like, It's just a phase. Week 12. You might wonder about routines with your baby. Is there a pattern to follow? Well, 12 weeks into parenthood, I can offer this as reassurance. At times, you will be lured into a false state of comfort. It resembles a routine, but it is no routine. This is your baby testing you, sucker. Don't be fooled by his cute, coy, toothless smile either. This is nature's trap, an evolutionary trick because nature knows that your baby does not have teeth, but nature still wants to bite you. This scenario is so universal and this experience is repeated in so many households. So I guess it is kind of like a routine after all, huh? You waste a lot of time trying to do things while carrying the baby in one arm. This is hopeless and quite frankly, dangerous. Kappa is right and makes a good point. But then again, aren't you allowed to have a point also? And might your point be, honey, do you remember learning to ride a bike with one arm? I bet that seemed dangerous too. However, with a little practice, you learn to do it with one arm quite confidently and then even with no hands. And then it just wasn't as dangerous anymore. It was actually kind of fun. So in a way, I guess your point is that you are compelled to up the ante and learn to ride the bike with one arm and a baby just to keep things challenging. Boy, how this brings back childhood memories. By 12 weeks, the baby coos and goos and vocalises on demand. If you smile at him, he smiles at you. He tracks things across the room with his eyes, following mum with an expression that seems to say, I need that. He's also beginning to express himself towards dad and learning about the real world. And although he can't speak English, if he could, he'd shout, I'm gonna get ya (laughs) The baby wakes from sleep a lot. He wants to show off how much he's learning and demonstrate his growing range of blood curdling screams. Is there something wrong? No, but what do you think of my new scream? You will say encouraging things like, Wow, son, that's really great screaming. We really thought you were hurt, we were asleep and dreaming but kids know how to pierce through to your very core. At 3 a.m., you stare into their eyes while changing a nappy, and they seem to communicate. That's okay, Dad. You can forget about your dreams. You don't need them anymore. (laughs) And the beautiful truth of this statement strikes you followed by a fountain of tears that seem to roll down your cheeks, and you realize how perceptive children can be. And then you realize, hey, those aren't tears. And that's not beautiful.
0: That was Felix Johnson reading The Incredible Exploding Baby by Matthew Bullman. Our next piece, Mexican Standoff, is a dark little microfiction from Susan McCreary's book, Loopholes. It is read by myself. A man leaves his son in the desert saying, Here you will become a man. He returns in ten days to find nothing but rotting flesh. He kneels to weep. What have I done? Before heading home to his wife who cries, Where is my son? You too must go into the desert to become a man. She drives to the road's end, thrusts her husband into the searing sun. For days he digs for food, finding none, A scorpion appears. Man and arthropod circle each other, threatening, waiting. That was Mexican Standoff by Thoreau writer Susan McCreary. Our next piece, Rights of Man, is told from a child's point of view. It is a microfiction by Sydney author and parent John Steiner. It is performed by Little Fiction's regular Joel Horwood.
2: I had been playing Dr. Panda's Airport on the iPad, but then I needed to do a Wii, so I told my dad. He said we'd put the iPad on the table and go and do a Wii and when I came back I could play Dr. Panda's Airport some more. So we went to the toilet and I did a Wii and then we came back, but then my mum said dinner was ready and I had to sit on the chair and they said I couldn't play Dr. Panda's Airport. I got quite upset. Not so much about playing Dr. Panda's Airport, but because I had been told one thing and now was told another. (laughs) I had expected to return from doing a Wii to play Dr. Panda's Airport some more, and instead had returned from doing a Wii to be told I could not play Dr. Panda's Airport anymore, but rather had now to sit on a chair and eat dinner. I don't even like sitting on a chair and eating dinner, especially when the dinner is peas. (laughs) So I cried because I cannot abide injustice when it is wrought against me, I mean. <laughs> they tried to calm me down. They soothed. They coaxed. They comforted. They pleaded. But I kept on crying. So then they got annoyed. They got stern. They cajoled. They ordered. They commanded. They shouted. But obviously none of that was going to right the wrong that had been done to me. So I kept on crying. <laughs> then my dad offered a deal. Okay, listen, how about this? You can play for a few more minutes, but after that we're putting away the iPad and you're gonna sit on your chair and eat your dinner, okay? And I don't wanna hear any more crying. That seemed reasonable inasmuch much as it involved my getting to play Dr. Panda's airport some more. So I nodded. He took out his telephone. How many minutes should we let you play? He asked. I held up some fingers. I'm not sure how many, but I generally hold these fingers up in these sorts of situations and it usually seems to be a reasonable response. (laughs) And in this case also, for my dad said, three minutes. Okay, I'm setting my timer. He did something on his telephone and then placed it on the table beside me. When the timer rings, the iPad goes away and you come and eat dinner and no more whinging or crying, okay? Do we have a deal? I nodded. He handed me the iPad and helped me get back to Dr Panda's airport. And so the grown-ups sat at the table eating and talking and I played Dr Panda's airport some more. Although actually, to tell you the truth, it was quite a generous allocation of time and I was pretty sick of Dr Panda's airport by the time the telephone finally made noise. It had always been about the principle of the thing, not about playing Dr Panda's airport per se. So I was all too happy to put away the iPad and do something else. They have this round thing in that room with lots of marbles on it that is pretty interesting. I ate a couple of bites of dinner just to placate them and then I went to play with that.
0: That was Joel Horwood performing "Rights of Man by John Steiner. You can hear more of John's work in our previous Little Fictions on Air episodes as well as an interview I recorded with John and Helen Meany on writing comedy. To catch up on these and other episodes, go to the two RPH or Spineless Wonders websites or subscribe to Little Fictions on Air via iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. We now turn to a more serious side of parenting with the moving short story, Hospital Birth by Melissa Bate. Melissa's short fiction has been published in Best Australian Stories and the Australian Women's Weekly. She lives in coastal northern New South Wales with her family and a bunch of chooks. A Hospital Birth is published in the Spineless Wonders Microlit anthology, Out of Place. It is read by Eleni Schumacher.
3: I'm here for a procedure. Three nurses look at me in synchrony mild interest, faint hostility, mild disinterest. What kind of procedure? For weeks, I've held myself together like an armful of oranges but they spill and go rolling all over the polished linoleum of the hospital corridor. An induced labour, my husband says, with a new belligerent tone holding me upright under the arms. My collapse is met with briskness, A midwife leads me by the elbow through corridors, teeming with signs of imminent or recent birth, a nightmare scape for someone with a belly as small and unpromising as mine. We'll put you in here, she says, tucking me out of sight. We don't want to upset the other ladies. Later, once labour is well underway and I'm begging her for pethidine, she mutters... I didn't become a midwife to go through this sort of thing. My other children were born at home, underwater, with music playing and candles burning. When it's over, I gaze at our dead child, who resembles a miniature alien, an alien whose body is incompatible with life on earth. Oh, says the midwife wistfully, It's a boy. That was
0: Eleni Schumacher, reading Melissa Bates' microfiction, A Hospital Birth. The final story we have for you today is set in 1970s Newtown and is written by Sydney author Julie Chevalier. Julie is a poet and short story writer who grew up in New Jersey and who now lives in Annandale. In Julie's story, The Young Lecturer's Wife a couple new to parenthood and Sydney, find a faculty drinks party less welcoming than they might have hoped.
3: She wore the baby across her left breast in a blue sling, armed for the end of semester drinks at the professor's house. Wake our baby and he'll explode. She could hear the men from the department and their wives chatting. Hello, hello, welcome. Glad you were both able to come said the Professor of Geology, shifting a glass of whiskey to his left hand. "'Sorry we're late,' said the youngest lecturer. "'A wheel fell off the collapsible pram. (laughs) "'Sounds like you youngsters need a drink. whiskey beer, wine, help yourselves.' "'He gestured to bottles on a silver tray in the dining area. "'The lights dimmed, became bright, dimmed. "'One of the Professor's children must be fooling with a dimmer switch.' There was no water. The youngest lecturer poured glasses of lemonade. On Friday nights after the baby settled, they usually crawled out the windows of their flat over the Greek milk bar and lounged on the metal awning, watching the lights of King Street. It was strangely peaceful looking down at the slowly moving cars. They heard horns, sirens and shouts, but no one ever looked up and noticed them. She had on the same dress with the front opening that she'd worn to every social occasion since the baby was born. The youngest lecturer called it her slave girl dress. Rust colour, now dotted with wet sick. Getting rustier by the minute. Want me to take him? He spoke low, so only she could hear. Later, let's not disturb him. She had worn the dress to the assistant professor's 60th birthday party when the baby was only three weeks old. The invitation had been sitting in a pigeonhole in the secretary's office. By the time they received it, neither of them noticed the note at the end. Come dressed as an old fossil or as your favourite rock. (laughs) Bearded men with sideburns dressed in grey were in the majority at the party, not counting the bald men dressed in grey. Fossils or maybe granite or greywack. The wives made more of an effort with the costumes one came as coral, one marble, one sandstone, one emerald. A schoolteacher came dressed as a piece of chalk. <laughs> Talk about feeling out of place. After the next faculty gathering, she tied the baby into the sling and window shopped along King Street, looking for the long-sleeved, button-up-the-front dresses called shirt which the faculty wives wore. Most of the clothing shops had vintage or used clothing with the same musty smell as the used bookstores. Brocade trousers, a crushed purple velvet cloak with a rip under the arm, stained maroon knee-high suede boots. One shop had new Carnaby Street gear. She would wear long vintage dresses with beads and shawls, but her mother back home, if she happened to find out, would never stop wailing about germs. My only grandson will catch something. Her mother would never believe the wealthy people of Sydney, Australia bought worn clothing. Like beggars. No one wore hand-me-downs in the photographs of Bondi Beach. She would mail more saris. The wife of the youngest lecturer caught the train to town hall to look at the dresses at David Jones where the faculty wives shopped. We stock shirt wasters, but they're for women who no no longer have waistlines. Maybe you'd like something by Prue Acton or Mary Quant? Try these, the shop assistant said, pushing curtains aside as she hung mini dresses next to the mirror in the posh change room. You're young, flaunt it. The sales assistant held up a mini dress, hot pink and orange. Cool, eh? And it'll be groovy with knee-high boots and a maxi coat when the weather gets colder. Want to try it? She pointed to beads and matching earrings on a mannequin. Plastic geometric shapes suit the dress, but ivory would look stunning against your skin. The youngest lecturer's wife was used to being stereotyped. Some things you could change, others you couldn't. She didn't try on anything. She couldn't imagine wearing a little girl's dress out of a nursery rhyme book. Maybe if she had a friend to shop with. The academic wives sipped shandies or Riesling and dunked potato crisps in dehydrated onion soup dip while they discussed sabbaticals, conferences, television, bridge. The youngest lecturer's wife silently translated the titles of the books on the floor-to-ceiling shelves. She stood up and swung her hips from side to side, shifting her weight from one foot to the other, rocking her son, moving closer to the academics who were discussing Cabernet Sauvignon. It took more than a bronze prize from an Easter show in Perth to impress these men. We haven't had a Cab Sav tasting in two semesters, said the associate professor. Cab Sav's at the August tasting, that's settled, said the professor. See, the God Professor Syndrome, whispered the youngest lecturer. The lights became bright again. Two kids in pyjamas tumbled down the carpeted steps into the sunken lounge area. Their cheeks were pink and their damp hair curly. They suddenly stood up straight as though they had been coached. They approached each couple, right hands extended, gave a slight nod and said in turn, Good evening, Dr White. Good evening, Mrs White. When they arrived at the youngest lecturer's wife, she smiled and introduced herself as Ms and told them her unpronounceable names. Good evening, Ms. (laughs) They laughed. Does the baby have an Aussie name? The girl reached her hand up towards the baby's black hair. We named him Bert, the youngest lecturer's wife said. Night, night, baby, said the girl. "'after Bertrand Russell, the great pacifist. "'A better name than Mahatma or Gandhi,' said one of the wives. "'There was no need to admit that Gandhi had been on their short list. (laughs) "'She tried to picture Bertie old enough "'to smile at strangers and shake white hands. "'Sleep well, kids. "'Charming manners, the professor's children,' one of the wives murmured. "'They didn't touch my hand.' the youngest lecturer's wife thought. The wives talked as though she were invisible and deaf. He cycles to the uni from Newtown. Both of them cycled in Cambridge, apparently. The baby has an anatomically correct boy doll with dark skin. And the most disgusting toy dog, real dog hair, imagine. Is her PhD from Cambridge? First class honours, 14 publications, imagine. I heard she has an interview for the senior lectureship. That job should go to one of our postgraduates. Last autumn in England, they'd stopped their bikes near the River Cam to watch a photo shoot. Models posed on a bridge dark velvet pants, black, dark chocolate, burgundy, and ivory satin blouses. She thought velvet pants would be perfect. Her husband stood behind her, moved her long plait forward over her shoulder, massaged her shoulders with his thumbs. I'll take him now. That was Eleni Schumacher
0: reading Julie Chevalier's The Young Lecturer's Wife. That's all we have time for this week. We hope you've enjoyed Progeny. Do drop us a line using the contact form on the 2RPH website or leave a comment on the 2RPH Facebook page. We'd love to know what you think of our show. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher, Bronwyn Meehan, and our sound engineer was Lachlan Perry. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your Little Fictions on Air host. Be sure to listen in next fortnight at 3pm. Bye for now.